Now, I'm excited today. I get to help start, I'm the, the lead-off batter, if I could put it that way, on a new series called Storyteller. And uh, this is a series that really has to do with uh, Jesus and his parables. And uh, today, I want to teach on one of the most familiar of all those parables, the, the parable of uh, the Good Samaritan. And I want to talk with you about life lessons on loving, because that's what Jesus is teaching in that. But uh, I just thought, since I'm the lead-off batter, maybe we ought to spend a few minutes talking about, about parables in general. Because if you've pulled out your notes, you'll notice Matthew 13 tells us that Jesus never spoke to the people without using parables. Uh, that that he, he just constantly taught parables. And uh, in the Gospels, we actually have 38 of those. There, I'm sure there were many more that uh, the Gospel writers didn't choose to to include in the Gospels. But we have 38 of those. And we're not going to have time to look at all 38, but we're going to look at some of them that uh, we think are, are really meaningful. Now, uh, we, we could ask the question, well, why is it that parables were so important to Jesus? Why did he teach in parables all the time? Because it, it's, it tells us he never spoke to the people without parables. There are three really good uh, or common answers that are given to that. One, uh, two of them are better than, than one of them, and uh, let me give them to you. First of all, is that he taught in parables to make things clearer for us. That the parables are simple stories that Jesus taught to illustrate about the kingdom of God. He was a master teacher. And every teacher understands that when you use analogies, when you use illustrations, they're, they're like opening windows and allowing the light to come into the room. And so it helps people to understand things a little clearer. And in fact, the word parable itself means to, to put something uh, next to something else, kind of like linking two oxen up to pull uh, a load. Uh, and so a parable is where Jesus would say, Here's what the kingdom of God is like. And then he'd tell a story. That's the most common kind of parable that he gave. Now, there's a, there's a second reason that I want to mention to you because some people hold this, and that is that he was actually trying to keep truths hidden from us. And the way, and I don't buy into this, but uh, the way this one goes is that, in fact, Jesus intentionally hid truths in these cryptic stories that he told that only the, those initiated into his disciples would be able to have him explain them uh, to them. And, uh, and, and in fact, it's really true. Sometimes even the disciples walked away scratching their head. You know, what? what's that story mean? In fact, uh, notice Matthew 13, it tells us, one day the disciples came to him and they asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? And this is where people who hold this idea kind of uh, base it on. He replied, because of the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom, notice that, the secrets of the kingdom, has been given to you, but not to them. And then he gives kind of a little cryptic saying here. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. For this people, their hearts have become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, 
and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Now, to me, Jesus kind of does away with this, this second reason, but I'd give it to you because if you read commentaries or whatever, sometimes there's some who hold this. I think Jesus is saying here, it's, it's not that I'm hiding things so that people can't understand them, it's that the people don't want to understand them. They've closed their eyes, they've closed their ears. It's like a parent having to say to a kid, what part of don't hit your sister with the iPad did you not understand? You know, you, you tracking with me here? And so here's the third thing, and that is that Jesus used them to actually awaken spiritual perception in us. That in fact, he tells us the parables to awaken our ability, to, to open our eyes, to force us to think. Jesus often, as he taught, asked questions because he wanted to prompt and probe and get something out of people, their response to the truth that he was teaching. And Jesus, by using parables, really what he was doing was not just laying one idea alongside another idea. In the parables, he lays ideas next to your life and mine. And he's, he's wanting to see, are we, are we going to respond to them? In fact, that's what makes the parables so powerful is that as we hear parables, invariably, we ask ourselves, which one of those characters in that parable would I be? When Jesus talks about a man who builds his house on the sand and a storm comes and it blows it down, but the man who builds his house on a rock will stand up against adversity. We ask ourselves, man, am, am I building my life on a rock? Or am I building it on shifting sand? And so Jesus is saying, it's, if you will, whoever has spiritual perception will be given more, but whoever doesn't have it won't even be able to understand and he won't get it. And it's because he was trying to awaken spiritual perception within us. By the way, this is interesting. I don't think people knew this in Jesus' day. I think Jesus knew this as our creator. But do you know that when you tell a story, you engage both sides of the brain? Did you know that there's a left hemisphere of your brain and a right hemisphere? And the left hemisphere is all about logic and principles and rules and linear thinking. But the right side is it's for spatial, it's emotional, it's, it's seeing how things are related to one another. And the moment that you start engaging the mind with a story that somebody puts themselves into, you're engaging both sides of the brain. Now, I think our Lord was a master teacher in that regard. Now, quickly, before we jump into this first of the parables, let, let me just give you some pointers about getting the point in the parables, lest you and I be confused by uh, trying to interpret them and understand them. And by the way, uh, next month in September, we're going to be starting up again something here called North Point Bible Institute. Uh, in fact, you can, you can go on to our website. There's a web address coming up on your screen right now, northpoint.org uh, slash NBI for North Point Bible Institute. This is a, it's a, a fall semester, spring semester program. It's four years where we're trying to teach you how to understand your Bible, how to interpret it properly. And we spend a lot of time in that course 
explaining, and, and those classes are about to start on Sunday mornings, and some of them be, will be on Sunday afternoons. You can check that out, or just email me, Pastor Steve at North Point, and we'll get you the info on that. But let me, let me just quickly give you, uh, I think it's helpful, some pointers on making sure we get the parables right. Number one, you don't want to miss the big idea taught in a parable. In fact, it's a good idea to, to ask the question, hey, what's the big idea here when you're reading a parable? Because there's one main idea that Jesus was communicating in his parables. And so it's good to step back and say, what's the, what's the main idea? In other words, second thing, don't get caught up in minor details. Now, some of the parables were very detailed. They had a lot of details in them. But what I want to say is those details didn't tend to be as significant to the message that he was getting across as the main thing he was trying to communicate. It's not that the details in a parable are totally meaningless, but they're like herbs and sauces that you add to a stew. And they bring out the flavor and help you enjoy the fullness of the stew, but they're not the main ingredient. And so sometimes we can get so caught up in details on the parables that it obscures the main point. You want to be careful. You're not trying to make parables, if you will, walk on all fours. As a professor I had uh, emphasized us. I'll show you what I mean by that in just a few minutes with the Good Samaritan. Third, don't push back on their challenges. See, what really happens is, is that as we listen to the parables... Jesus is challenging us just like he challenged his original audience. And that challenge is sometimes hard to go with, but don't push back on that because that's the whole point is that your life and mine will be changed. In fact, this last week as I was preparing for this message, I came across a, something that a commentator wrote and I wrote it down. I thought it was so good. He said this, you can't live comfortably with the Bible's teachings, only uncomfortably or you really don't understand it at all. And that's really true. Sometimes the parables will make us uncomfortable. Go with it. Let Jesus make the changes in you that he wants to make. Mark Twain once said, it ain't those parts of the Bible I don't understand that I have a problem with. It's the ones that I do. And so go with what he teaches. Now, in light of that, let's take a look together at this great parable called the Good Samaritan. It's probably the most familiar of all of the parables that Jesus taught. And so it's found in Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25. I've put it on your notes there in case you want to underline things and make notes and so forth, just to make it easier. On one occasion, Luke tells us, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now, an expert in the law, this isn't a lawyer like we think of attorneys today. Sometimes these guys were called scribes. They spent their time studying the scripture intensely to understand what are all the commandments we're required to keep. And um, he was part of the religious establishment, which you should understand, resented Jesus because Jesus, as an untrained expert, drew the people into his teaching and they loved his interpretation and frankly, some of these experts kind of resented that and so that's the idea here. He tests him and he asks him, 
Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what's written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? That's kind of interesting because Jesus knew this guy spent his whole time reading the law. In fact, he probably had a box on his forehead strapped on called a phylactery that actually had some of the, the laws in it because it was a symbol of him keeping it constantly before his mind. So Jesus says, well, how do you read the law? And so he answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now let me stop here for a second. The first of those, to love God, that's what's called the Shema. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and it's called the Shema because it begins with the Hebrew word Shema. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, he's the one, and you're to love him with all your heart and soul and strength and mind. So he quotes from the Shema. But then he quotes from a second passage, and it's found in Luke cha uh, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. In fact, I want to bring it up on the screen here for a moment, because here's what it says in Leviticus 19, 18. Don't seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so the guy combines loving God and loving our neighbor. And Jesus says, uh, you know, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now I want to stop here for just a second. I need to again. Because the question this guy asks an important question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? See, what Jesus is saying is, if you want to have eternal life, that's the epitome of it. It's loving God with everything you are, and it's loving your neighbor as yourself. That is the way the righteous who have eternal life are to live. That's the way life in heaven is. That's the way life in the eternal age that this guy was hoping he could get into is going to be lived, Jesus said. Loving God and loving our neighbor. But I want to tell you, there's no way Jesus meant to teach by this that as long as you just keep the commandments, you'll get to heaven. In fact, Jesus knows what you and I already know in our own hearts. We can't do that, can we? We can't do it perfectly. It's the, it's the Simone Biles syndrome, if you will. Nobody can do it perfectly all the time. We can't do it. That's why Jesus very carefully taught that unless God gives us his grace and his mercy, we will never be able to get into heaven because we're not righteous enough in our own righteousness. And so look at what happens next. And the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, now what does that mean? Well, it could be he felt that same sense of deficit you and I feel when we think about having to be perfect enough to get into heaven. I don't know. I have an idea, though, that what, because he was the trained expert here, he didn't want this itinerant Galilean preacher to look like he was superior to him. And so he says, well, but, uh, but who is my neighbor? See, can I go back for a second to Leviticus 19, 18? I want to show you something, because... What this guy knew is that the rabbis loved to argue about. This passage says, don't seek revenge or bear a grudge against any among, notice, your people. 
but love your neighbor as yourself. And their argument was, well, who are we required to, te- to, to, to love as our neighbor? Is it just my people? Is it just my clan or my village? Or is it just Israelites? Who is it? And so this guy's wanting to get Jesus caught up in that whole thing. And Jesus doesn't get caught into that argument. What does he do? He lays out a parable. And look at what he says. So in reply, Jesus answered, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. And they stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, I just want to tell you, one of the things Jesus loved to do was just take real life kinds of things. And I'll tell you, when he describes the road going down from from, uh, Jerusalem to Jericho, I mean, that was a literal people were quite familiar with it. Here's a topographical uh, picture of of Israel with the Dead Sea down here and the and uh, the Jordan Valley down here. Jerusalem is up here in the mountains. Jericho is way down here, 1,300 feet below sea level. And so the road down from from Jerusalem to Jericho literally was a descent constantly over about 15 miles. And you can see the kind of terrain. It was a place where robbers quite frequently would hide in caves and they would they would jump people and and rob them, just as he's describing here. So Jesus is talking about something very familiar. Maybe he was even standing by this road as he tells this story. And they left him for for half dead, he says. But then he says, it just so happened that a Levite, uh, that a priest happened to be going down that same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side And so too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, can I I just stop us a second again and can I point something out to you? Because Jesus has really identified for us four kinds of, four people, three kinds of, of people in our world. First are the takers, they're the robbers. They're the people who say, what you have will be mine because I'm gonna take it from you. And some of you, you, you've been around some of those people. Some of you have been victimized by those kinds of people. Then there's the sufferers, that what was mine has now been lost, and I'm in need of it. That's the man who Jesus tells us his story, desperately in need, may not survive. Then there's a priest who comes along, who works in the temple, and a Levite who assisted the priests in their work, And they see the man in his desperate need, but they pass by the other side and they keep going. Those are what we would call the keepers. That what I have is mine, and it's for me. And I'm not going to share it with you. But then Jesus goes on. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came along where the man was, and when he saw him, He took pity on him, and he went to him and bandaged his wounds, and he poured oil on wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey, and he brought him to an inn to take care of him. Now, what's interesting here is that when Jesus says a Samaritan, we don't catch this today because the phrase good Samaritan has become such a good thing. I mean, there are hospitals called Good Samaritan Hospital. 
There's a great organization called Samaritan's Purse that helps people. There's even a good Sam's Club based on this story right here. So the good Samaritan has become a good thing, but I want to tell you that to Jesus hearers, the moment he mentioned a Samaritan, that was a head snap. If he were teaching today, perhaps he would say, a Palestinian came along. Because you're aware of the animosity and hatred going on between Israelis today and Palestinians. See, if there was a villain in this story at all, it was a Samaritan. But he's the hero. And in fact, for Jesus, he's the guy who helps us to understand what it means to really love our neighbor. If you will, he represents those who are givers. Who say, you know what, what I have is not mine, but it came from God, and I'm willing to share it with you in your need. And so suddenly, he's got everybody's attention. Who's my neighbor? A Samaritan would love a neighbor as himself? I'm not sure if we're still catching the import of how surprising this was. So let me give you an example. Last June, there was a rally in Washington, D.C., attended very heavily by African Americans. And uh, after that rally, let's imagine that a, that a man went out to dinner with some of his friends, and then he parted from his guests. He descended down the subway in Washington, D.C. to catch his train, and a gang came along, and they robbed him, and they stabbed him, and they left him for dead. But a few minutes later, down that same escalator came a president of a local chapter of the NAACP. And when he saw the man... He was alarmed by it, but he also saw his train arriving and realized that he needed to get on it, so he passed him by and got on his train. And a minute or so later, in came a Black Lives Matter protester wearing his BLM shirt. And when he saw the man, he became concerned that he himself could become a victim like him, and so he went on to his own platform and left him laying there. But a moment later, a guy who was a, been there that day with the Proud Boys came along and when he saw him, he took pity on him and he came over and he checked his vitals and he took his bandana and he pressed it into his wound and he got his, his cell phone and called 911 and stayed with him until the EMTs got there to make sure that he would survive. Now, now are you beginning to catch what Jesus is saying here? He's flipping the whole idea of who does God consider to be our neighbor? And how are we to love our neighbor as ourself? So he puts the man on his own donkey. In fact, I love this painting by a French realist from the 18th century. In fact, it's pretty realistic, is it not? I had to add a little bit of shading in there to make sure that YouTube wouldn't knock us off for getting a little too graphic with that picture uh, when you see it. And, uh, but this is the idea. And he goes on. And he takes him to an inn. And he spends the night because the next day he took two out two denarii. That was a day's wage. A two uh, denarius was a day's wage. He gave them to the innkeeper and he said, look after him. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And then Jesus asked the question. Now, which of these three proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. 
Couldn't bring himself to say the Samaritan, the one who had mercy on him. And then what does Jesus say next? Go and do likewise. Now, let's quickly, this is a simple parable so we can look at it pretty simply. In the time we've got left, let me just give these things to you. It looks like a lot of fill-ins, so we'll, we'll go quick. But let's take a look at what does this parable really mean because frankly, the lawyer's heart and his attitudes have now been challenged by this story, but ours is meant to be challenged as well. By the way, I mentioned to you about don't press too many details into parables. You know that there was a time in church history when there was an allegorical method that looked at this and said, well, the road going down, that's a human descent into sin. And the robbers, that represents Satan and his forces who, uh, who leave the man, uh, you know, in a, whor- in a death kind of a situation. And uh, the, the priests and the Levites who came along, that's the Old Testament law and prophets that really can't do anything to save us. And the good Samaritan, that's Christ. He comes along and he takes the wine of salvation, a symbol of his own shed blood, and pours it into the wound and the oil of gladness to help bring life back to us. And then he puts us on the donkey. The donkey represents the Holy Spirit. And he takes us to the end. That represents the church. And he pays the innkeeper, who is St. Paul and the other apostles, to take care of this and gives him two denarii. That's our reading from the Old Testament. You you beginning to catch what I'm saying? Suddenly the details of the thing get totally obscured by trying to press all these details. What's Jesus trying to teach us? Here's how to be a neighbor. Would you write these down? Number one. Jesus is teaching love is your default setting with others. That whenever you encounter a human being, no matter what they're like, love is your default setting toward them. Even if they're your enemy, you always relate in love. I like something that uh, my friend Tom Holliday in his, his great book, The Relationship Principles of Jesus, the book I highly recommend where he looks at Jesus' teaching about relationships. I love the way he puts it. He says, for Jesus' followers, our dominant life value is loving. It's loving. See, friends, here's what you and I need to understand. As a follower of Jesus, we don't have to love vegetables. We don't have to love dogs or cats for that matter. We, we don't have to love our work. We don't have to even love America, but we have to love people. Because, why? They are, if you'll write this down, holy images of our God himself. Every person is created an image of God. You know, God in the Ten Commandments said, don't make any images of me. Because you'll, you'll get my image wrong. And by the way, I've already made an image that's good enough to reflect what I'm like. It's called a person. A human. And human beings are in the image of God. And so our default setting toward other humans (laughs) has got to be love. Now, maybe you're kind of like Linus and Peanuts and you say, well, I I love mankind. It's just people that I can't stand. (laughs) You know, a famous poem talking about heaven says, to dwell above with those we love. Oh, that will be glory. But to live below with those we know, well, that's another story. And, uh, but Jesus says we're to love. John, 1 John 4, 20 to 5, 1 says, 
if he doesn't, doesn't love his brother who is right there in front of him? You got to underline that phrase, who is right there in front of him. Do you know who the most important person in Jesus' agenda was every day? It was the person standing right in front of him at any given time. And there were always people trying to rush him on to do something else. But he loved the person right there in front of him. If we don't love that person, how can we love God whom we've never seen? And God himself has said that the one that one must not only love God, but his brother too. And all who love the Father love his children too. And Jesus is the one who said, whatever you did in Matthew 25, 40, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Now, what Jesus is teaching is love acts when a human being is before us who lacks or who has lost something they need and it's in our power to help restore it in love. Loving not in the abstract, but the real people who are in front of us. Because, if you'll write this down, they're each known and loved by him. And just as he encountered people in his journeys and loved them, God in his providence will put people in our pathway today so that you and I can be used by him to express his love. And he knows they could use what you and I have to offer. Number two. Here's the second thing his parable teaches. Man, we could stop at number one. That's heavy duty enough right there, is it not? Love's got to be our default. Number two, love is something that you do. Notice Jesus said to this man, you go and not think like this, not feel like this, but you go and do likewise. Love is not something we feel, it's not an attitude we hold as much as it's steps that we take to show it. 1 John 3, 17 and 18 says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. You see, love always acts in ways that are practical and considerate and generous and compassionate. If you'll write these two things down, you won't ignore needs that you see. Three times in this parable, Jesus says, he saw the man and he passed by. He saw the man and he passed by. And then finally, he saw the man and he felt pity for him. Proverbs 3.27 is a very interesting verse. I like how the message uh, translates this. It says, never walk away from someone who deserves help because your hand is God's hand for that person. In fact, there's a great definition of love, and it's all about being a giver, that love is giving to the greater needs of another. And what I mean by that definition is, is that love sees another human being in need and says, you know what, your need is greater than my need to hold on to what I have, so I'm going to share with you because your need is greater than mine. And I want to give. Toward you. Now, is this making you as uncomfortable as it makes me? <laughs> yeah, because it's a heck of a lot easier to live as a keeper, is it not? 
What I have is mine and I'll keep it for myself. And, and Jesus is saying that's not what love is all about. And what he's teaching us here is you'll go beyond expected limits. Would you write that down? That human beings are your neighbor. And this parable blows up all the traditional categories of who the Jews said was lovable and wasn't lovable and important and wasn't important. And Jesus says that love will act unexpectedly and it will because it does that need meeting and self-sacrificing in ways that are absolutely amazing. We will disadvantage ourselves when we love someone else because we want to help them. We'll live with inconvenience or delays. Sometimes we'll even put ourselves in danger and in great risk to care for somebody that we love. You know, I was thinking about the fact this week it, it came to my attention, next month will be the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Can you believe that? It's already been 20 years. And, uh, and I, I was... Uh, caught up with that a few days ago and I was looking at a website that was talking about it and it, and it just reminded me of what an amazing thing it was to these pictures we have of firefighters going up into a building that they knew could crash down. Walking upstairs to save lives. See, human beings have an incredible capacity to give to the greater need of others. And then, if, if I could put it this way, number three, love shows what it knows and it gives as it received. And what I mean by this is that unselfishness and generosity and deference to the needs of others, love doesn't come naturally. That's learned behavior. And we've learned it because. As we get to know who God is, we discover that God loves us, that he gave his only son for us. And the way the New Testament puts it, we love because he first loved us. Hey, do you ever remember as a kid maybe getting in a pushing match with somebody or whatever and then the, like the teacher would come break it up or your parents would come break it up and and then one of the other of you said, well, but he started it. Well, he started it. And if I could say to you, why do we love? Because he started it. He loved us first. And love is showing what we know in the love from him. Ephesians 5 puts it this way. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. In fact, that little phrase, walk in love, that literally means to live a life of loving. Now, it's not hard for us to understand doing big things to help people out when they're in super, you know, extreme kind of situations, but what he's really describing here is that, that God wants you and me to learn how to live a life of love constantly, paying attention to the needs of others around us and giving to those needs. 1 John 4, 17 puts it this way, because as he is in his love, so are we to be in the world. And God can use you and me in powerful, powerful ways 
to be an instrument of his love. In fact, I was reminded working on this message of a story that I told some years back. Some of you may recall me uh, telling this story. Uh, if not, I'm, it's okay, I'm going to tell it again anyway. But uh, a, a guy by the name of Bob Green, a journalist with the Chicago Tribune, heard a story about a young man, 15-year-old Douglas Maurer, who lived in uh, Missouri, and he got sick. They thought he had the flu, but his symptoms persisted. They finally took him to the hospital. They ran some tests and discovered he had leukemia. And over the period of a couple of days, they, they took bone marrow transplants. They gave him blood transfusions. They actually began giving him chemotherapy. And then the doctors gave him the bad news that he had this very dangerous form of blood cancer. And the only way he could survive, if he could survive, was to have about three years of chemotherapy. Well, this young man was down and discouraged and about as low as you could get. And he was in his hospital room with his aunt, and he was kind of griping and complaining. You can understand. Imagine in the prime of your life getting that kind of diagnosis. And he looked around this drab room, and he said to his aunt, you know what, when you're in the hospital, don't they at least give you flowers? And so she thought, you know, I, I need to get him flowers. So she went out of the room, called a local florist to arrange for an for a, a arrangement of flowers, and the young person that she talked to on the other line, frankly, she wasn't convinced this person really knew what they were doing, so she said, now look, this is a 15-year-old boy, so don't send him, you know, anything inappropriate. It's got to be appropriate for him. He's a 15-year-old young man, and he has leukemia. Well, the young lady who took his order, her name was Laura Bradley, and she put together a beautiful arrangement and sent it when he got it. He appreciated it. He opened the envelope that was with it, and he read the note from his aunt who had sent it. But then there was another note inside, and Laura Bradley had written this, Douglas, I'm the one that took the order from your aunt. I work at Bricks Florist. I had leukemia when I was seven years old, and I'm 22 years old now. And so good luck to you. My heart goes out to you. Sincerely, Laura Bradley. Well, that note changed everything for that young man. And Bob Green heard about it. In fact, he began to improve. His condition began to change. And he actually survived from this. And it was that note that was the turnaround experience. So he called her up and interviewed her. And he said, you know, what's the deal? And she said, well, you know, when Douglas's aunt told me that he had leukemia, I felt tears coming to my eyes. It reminded me of when I first learned that I had it. And I realized what he had to be going through. And I wanted him to know that you really can get better. So I just wrote the card and I slipped it into the envelope. I didn't tell anybody here I did it because I haven't worked here very long. I was afraid I might get in trouble. <laughs> Do you realize that a minimum wage employee part-time did something that all of the specialists in that hospital didn't have the power to do with their multi-million dollars of technology? Gave hope and courage for him to go on. You know, you and I have the power to do that with these human beings that we interact with every day, my friends. And so God says, I, I just want you to live a life where you're sensitive to trying to help other people as you can and encourage them. 
In fact, can I take just a second and do this? There's a, some little end notes I want to give you. It won't take me long to hit those, but I just want to say to you, you know that right here in the church is a great place where you can just learn how to love practically other people. In fact, I want to encourage you to go to a, a spot on the web, northpoint.org slash now, and look at some opportunities of ways you could get involved to just begin to show practical love to people every day. When you get there, you're going to see several things. I want to highlight a couple of them that are going to come up. One is prayer lounge prayers. These are people who, after our service, sometimes there's people who are going through a great period of turmoil or difficulty. Sometimes they just have questions about faith, and they go to our lounge, and we need people there who can just pray with them and express the love of God to them. Is that something that you could do? If so, go there and just follow the links and get signed up. Say, you know what? That's, that's a way in which I know that I could, just, I could just love on people in a practical way. Another is helping with North Point Kids and Kids Corps by being just a small group leader that just begins to encourage you. There's training and materials and all that stuff, but to just be with kids week after week during the school year, just teaching them about God's love and making a difference in their life. See, these are practical ways in which we can show what we know and we can give what we've received. Now, can I finish this up by giving you some quick end notes on loving well? Because that's really what Jesus says. Be a person who loves well. But as a pastor, I just want to tell you that I know that there are some questions and difficulties come along. So let me give these to you. Would you write them down real quickly? First of all, just remember, I mustn't cross others off or take a pass myself in loving others. And what I mean by that is no allowing our categories of persons to keep somebody off limits of our loving them, okay? We can't do that as followers of Jesus. And no taking a pass that somebody needs to be more qualified than you or more gifted or whatever to be able to meet that need. If Jesus Christ has brought someone across your path, it's because you can make a difference in their life. Number two, just remember, I can't fix every person nor meet every need. You know, it's easy when you hear a message like this to say, well, I, I gotta help every person that I ever meet. And Now, it doesn't, doesn't mean that I have to pick up every hitchhiker or stop to assist every stranded motorist or give a few bucks to every person standing on a corner holding a cardboard sign. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that. Because, in fact, you can't help and fix every person. That's called having a Messiah complex. And, my friends, even the Messiah couldn't fix everybody. But it does mean I'm willing to say, God, would you use me as your instrument of love? And when you nudge me, I'll respond. And third, I oughtn't ever help more than I should. I oughtn't to ever try to help people more than I should. And the reason I mention this, some people get confused about this and they just don't know where to stop and so they go too far in trying to love others. You know, I don't want to make the parable walk around on all fours, but it's striking to me that the good Samaritan, you know, he only spent one night taking care of this guy because he did what he knew he could do, but he, he did all he needed to do. Well, why not stay two more nights with this guy? Why not go replace everything the guy had stolen? Why not give him all of your stuff? Why not put him on the donkey and take him all the way home? No, he didn't do any of that. Because, you see, he assumed this guy's going to get back on his feet, and then he'll be okay. 
but I just needed to help right now with this burden that he had. And some of us have a hard time because we just don't know how to, when do, when do you stop? When is enough enough? Here are four balancing things. Would you finish this sentence that I keep in mind when I struggle with, you know, how much is enough and what do I need to do? First, honor their identity. Because this is a child of God, they've gotten my attention. And I want to make a difference in their life if I can. But then I need to guard their security. Okay, is this person in a situation where their safety or their security, they need food or clothing or shelter, and can I help make a difference in that way? Third, I want to preserve their dignity. Because often when people are in distress and difficulty, they feel vulnerable and exposed, and we need to be careful that we protect their sense of dignity and take care of them. Then number four, I've got to respect their responsibility. I don't, I don't have to do more for them than I needed to. And just like the Good Samaritan expected this guy would be able to be on his feet and that he'd done enough, don't try to take over what somebody else really needs to do for themselves. In fact, be very careful of trying to help people more than they seem to be willing to help themselves is what I'm trying to say. Now, is that helpful to you? Because, man, I struggle sometimes with these things. What I want to do is just be able to live the life of love Jesus wants me to live. But I'll tell you what I've discovered. That's a life I don't have. And the last thing I want to do is try to challenge you to live a life you don't have. But the wonderful things is that Jesus says we can have his life in us if we'll ask for his help. And this parable is meant, I think, to lead us to say, Lord, I need you. I need this kind of love in my life. Let's ask for his help right now. Lord, thank you for how your truth has been laid aside our lives today. Thank you for how it's challenged us. Thank you for how it's calling us. Thank you for how you want to equip us to be people who become your hands and feet, your heart to other people. Just as we just show simple compassion and love. Jesus, live your life in us. Be in us the people that you want us to be. No one can live a Christian life like you can, Jesus. And so live your life through us as we yield ourselves to you. In your holy name we pray. Amen.